My name's Kieran Carr, I'm the minister here, and uh, it's a delight to be able to look uh, briefly with you at this passage. Uh, I, uh, hopefully my clickers uh, can get my clicker working. Uh, Jason, you're probably working on... There we go, there's a photo. It's been seven years since I've been uh, ordained as a, a priest or presbyter in the Anglican Church uh, in Australia. Here's a, a photo of me on my uh, ordination day, and I still remember uh, the Archbishop of Melbourne, Philip Freer, laying his hands on me uh, in the cathedral, St Paul's Cathedral there in the middle of Melbourne, uh, praying for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And uh, what he gave me uh, at that point was, was this, uh, this um, Bible. Uh, and he gave it to me, uh, really, and to those of us who are being ordained as a, as a symbol of, of our, our core uh, ministry. Uh, in the um, ordination service, he asked us a question. Uh, he asked Uh, me uh, this question, uh, and it was this. Uh, Are you convinced that the Holy Scriptures contain all doctrine necessary for eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and are you determined to instruct from these Scriptures? Uh, And the answer, of course, is yes, with God's help. Uh, And so uh, the the mission you might uh, know of St. Philip's is making disciples who make disciples. And um, disciple literally means learner. It's about learning. uh, And it's about learning what it is that God has revealed through uh, the Scriptures. Uh, This letter that we're looking at, or at least as part of um, Paul's letter to Titus, who, by the way, Titus was kind of left as a um, pastor of a church, and the Apostle Paul was writing to him about how to go about his business. And it's interesting, because in just three short chapters, Titus is, is quite a short epistle, the The Apostle Paul mentions the word teach, um, not once, not twice, not three times, but 12 times in just three short chapters. Um, So you get the sense of the core business of the the work of a pastor, just as you get the sense of um, this through the gift of this Bible, through the ordination service. Uh, So, for example, in chapter 2, verse 1, hopefully you've got it open, you can see there the Apostle Paul says, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. That's what you are to teach. Um, and, and really, the, the big idea uh, can be summed up with that phrase, sound doctrine, or, or if you want one word, um, this word doctrine. And you might go, well, it's a strange word. It's not really a word that we use today. What does that word mean? Well, you can pick up on what the word means by identifying the fact that it contains the word, more or less, doctor in it. Doctrine contains the word doctor. The original doctors in our culture, in Western culture, were the doctors of the church. So they weren't called pastors, uh, like John, people like John Calvin. Uh, they were called doctors. The original doctors in society were pastors. And the medicine that they administered to the body of Christ was the medicine of the gospel in the scriptures. Uh, so there was a woman who took her husband to the doctor's office and after his checkup, the doctor said, uh, your husband is suffering from a, a very serious infection. Uh, the husband was uh, hard of hearing, so he said, what did he say? And uh, she said to him, he says you're sick, uh, the doctor uh, said. Uh, then uh, he says to uh, the wife, uh, well, to both of them, uh, but there is hope. Uh, You just need to reduce his stress. 
Uh, Each morning you need to give him a healthy breakfast, uh, be pleasant, nice and kind. Uh, For lunch and dinner, make him his favourite meal. Uh, Don't discuss your problems with him, it'll only make his stress worse. Don't yell at him or argue with him. And most importantly, just cater to your husband's every whim. And if you can just do this for 6 to 12 months, I guarantee you he will have a complete recovery. Well, the husband, hard of hearing, said, what did he say? And she said, he says you're going to (laughs) die. Doctrine contains the word doctor. Because in the scriptures, God doesn't want us to die. He wants us to live. Uh, He doesn't want us to be sick. He wants us to be strong. And so he has provided in the scriptures doctrine like a good doctor to make us strong and well. That's why Paul, if you look in verse 8, he says, these things are excellent and profitable for everyone, just like good medicine is. Uh, I'm using NIV, so there might be a few, uh, the NIV translation, you've got NRSV, so there might be a few subtle uh, differences as we go through the text. Uh, But uh, the body of Christ needs good food and good medicine. And the Apostle Paul is saying, these things that I'm saying are excellent and profitable. In other words, this is the good medicine. And so today I'm going to be asking the question, what is sound doctrine? Because that's what Paul is saying in this passage is sound doctrine. And they're the doctrines of grace they've been called through the history of the church. Um, Now, as we go through this, I just want to warn you, sometimes a message can be a bit like a light snack. Uh, other times it can be a massive feast. Sometimes you can feel like um, what you need is milk. Um, other times, and uh, this morning is one of those cases, you get served up um, a whole lot of meat. Uh, and uh, it takes a bit more my digestion uh, to uh, get it down. And, and that's what we'll be going through this morning. I've got six Ps as we go through uh, this passage together. And, and again, um, I say it all the time do please keep it in front of you because the first P of of what sound doctrine is is found in verse 3 and that is that it starts with a problem. Have a look. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Uh, In just one short verse, Paul manages to pack in eight descriptors of what human nature is like and what we are like apart from Christ. He talks also about malice and envy, hate, um, your translation I think says um, despicable, Um, the NIV says hated and hating. Uh, Well, Uh, Tim Chester says malice, which Paul talks about, is wishing bad things would happen to other people, whereas envy is wishing that good things hadn't happened to other people. Uh, To put it another way, uh, envy is about keeping up with the Joneses. Malice is about catching up with them, smashing them in the ground and rubbing their faces in it. And that's what Paul says human nature is like apart from Christ in verse 3. It's not a pretty picture. And that's just two of the eight words that he uses. He says, that's what we were like, apart from Christ, in verse 3. He says, we were enslaved by all kinds of passions 
and pleasures. It's just, we were enslaved. Just imagine um, a lion locked in a cage and you were to put in front of the lion um, a bowl of meat and a bowl of wheat. Which one is the lion going to go for? He's going to go for, a hungry lion is going to go for the meat every single time. That's what his nature is. It is not in his nature. Uh, his passion and his pleasures are not for wheat. They are for meat. And the Apostle Paul is, we were enslaved by passions and pleasures. And that is what is in our nature. We're just like the lion, enslaved, which is pretty much exactly what the Lord Jesus says in the Gospels when he says, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Paul is saying exactly the same thing here in different words, being enslaved by passions and pleasures. Theologians have called this the doctrine of total depravity, which is not to say that humans are as bad as they possibly could be, which is what it sounds like. No, it's saying that we're like the lion in that the same way a lion will choose meat every time, we are enslaved by passions and pleasures to sin. So sound doctrine starts out squarely in verse 3 with a problem. Another way of saying it is that the good news, the very good news, starts with some very bad news. But it's actually what puts the good news into stark contrast and makes it so good. It starts with a problem, verse 3. Verse 4, we move on to a person. Paul says, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared... He saved us. In other words, we're saved not by a proposition, we're saved by a person. We're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Biblical preaching didn't die for us on the cross. Sound doctrine didn't die for us on the cross. Systematic theology didn't die for us on the cross. It was a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see there's a proposition and a person in that verse? It talks about the kindness and love of God, a proposition... But that kindness and love is a person, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not sure if uh, how often you list um, up a a list of pros and cons when you're making a big decision. You know how sometimes you you like, what are the pros of this and what are the cons of this? Well, I want you to imagine if um, the Lord God was to do that for us in contemplating whether or not to save us using the Apostle Paul's description here in verses 3 to 8 of Titus 3, a list of cons and a list of pros. Look at the list of cons that he would come up with in verse 3. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malice, envy, hated, hating. That's a long list of cons. Now, when I look through the passage, I can't see anything on the list of pros in Titus 3 verses 3 to 8. Isn't that devastating? Isn't that shocking? That, that's what makes the but so important. There's a big but at the start of verse 4 and he doesn't go on to describe what we're like. Who does he go on to describe verse 4? I found seven different descriptors for what God is like in the passage, starting in verse 4. He talks about the God of kindness and love and mercy, and generosity, and grace, and hope, and life. That's what God is like, and that is where we put our trust and our hope. That's why Robert Murray McChain says, 
For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and such meekness and grace. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. What a great quote. And yet sometimes I worry that we've got it exactly the wrong way around. For every look at Christ, that we take ten looks at ourselves. No, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ, is what we're being shown here. So sound doctrine begins with a problem, but it leads us to a person And thirdly, it's based on a principle in verse 5. Given what we've seen about what we have to condemn us in verse 3 and how little there is to commend us that we see at the start of this passage, it makes sense that Paul would give us this principle in verse 5. Look at what the principle is. It's, he saved us, and here's the principle, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. We're saved by grace, not by works. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 8. You've been saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not by works, so that no one can boast. The principle by which we're saved is by grace and not by the righteous things that we've done. That's the third point. So we've seen a problem in verse 3 a person in verse 4, a principle in verse 5, and now a bit longer on a process that he describes through which we're saved in verses 5 to 7. Now, I told you this was going to be meat and not milk, and this is where we get to the really meaty part of the message, because what I see in verses 5 to 7 is Paul uh, laying out to us four um, aspects of the way in which we are saved uh, in the process of salvation. Theologians have called it um, the order salutis, which just means the order of salvation. So let's read it first, starting in verse 5. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously, I think yours says richly, through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Isn't that wonderful? He could have just said he poured it out on us, the Holy Spirit. He poured the Spirit. He poured him out on us richly so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So it starts in, at the start of verse 7 with having been justified. This is the doctrine of justification. And then the last thing at the end of verse 7, it says that we're heirs of eternal life, having the hope of eternal life. So it begins with justification and it ends with eternal life, which we've called glorification. Um, so justification, remember, is a legal term. It's a, it's a courtroom scenario where the judge, we stand guilty before the judge, but he's able to pronounce over us not guilty which you read verse 3 and go, well, that's not what it says. How are we pronounced not guilty? It's because our guilt was placed on Christ on the cross and His righteousness has been counted to us. That's why we read Psalm 32. Happy is the one whose sins will not be counted against them. 
So that's the doctrine of justification. And it's a past tense. We've been justified because Jesus did it 2,000 years ago when he took our sins on the cross. So that's where the process begins. But then there's the end of the process, glorification, where he says we have the hope of eternal life. We're like heirs waiting for a massive inheritance on Christ's return. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Philippians says that when Jesus returns, he will transform our lowly bodies to make them like his glorious body. And that happens when Jesus comes back to bring us home. Or more accurately, in Revelation, he brings home to us. Heaven comes down to earth on Christ's return. Justification in the past, glorification in the future. What about the present? That's where we get to verses 6 and 7. Sorry, verse 5 actually. Uh, Verse 5 says, He saved us through the washing, or your translation says the water, of rebirth. Okay, this idea rebirth, um, Paul is picking up on a conversation that the Lord Jesus had with Nicodemus. I can't... I don't know if you remember that conversation. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. There was something in Jesus that he saw that he was curious about. Um, Nicodemus was a good guy. He was an upright guy. He came to Jesus and said, look, Jesus, no one could perform the miracles you're doing if God were not with him. So he's taken a long way to come to the Lord Jesus, but he's kind of rebuffed by Jesus. Jesus says to him in, in John 3, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless what? for those of you who know it, unless he is born again, unless she is born again. In other words, this upright Pharisee, I mean, you couldn't get more righteous, you couldn't have better intentions, and yet the Lord Jesus says, no matter how righteous you are, no matter how good your intentions are, no matter how well you've kept the law or come to church, no matter how passionate or sincere you are, because that's everything that Nicodemus was, Jesus says to him, you must be born again. In other words, unless God does something in you, you don't stand a chance. Think about it. How many people here um, decided to be born? Well, this is what the image of being born again is, or rebirth is. It's, Jesus is using this imagery to say, in the same way that you had nothing to do with the decision to be born the first time, so it has to be a work of God for you to be born the second time to be born again. That's why Jesus says, not of a husband's will, but by the will of God. Paul is talking about being born again. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. Now stay with me here. Theologians have called this doctrine the doctrine of regeneration, or in the old times they called it vivification. So viva is... um, you know, French for life, and so vivification is about being brought to life. Um, These days, we we use the word regeneration, is that act um, of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in the person, and the governing position of their soul is made holy. Do you notice how he says, um, I think your translation says, the water of rebirth? A better translation is the washing of rebirth. You're taking an amazing bath, and being washed. This is what Paul is saying. And, and your soul, down to the very core of your being, has been washed and cleansed and made holy through this work of regeneration so that a theologian can continue 
Regeneration is God's transformation of individual believers. He's giving them a new spiritual vitality and direction for their lives when they accept Christ. The new birth is the restoration of human nature to what it originally was intended to be. That's why the prophet Ezekiel says, I will put a new heart in you. I will take out your heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. That's Ezekiel 36. We've seen justification. Then we see um, regeneration at the start of verse 5. And now at the second half of verse 5b, we see sanctification. Do you see that phrase, the renewal by the Holy Spirit, being renewed. This is talking about us being renewed day by day to become more and more like Christ. So up on the screen again, sanctification is that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which he delivers the justified sinner from the pollution of sin and renews the whole person in the image of God and enables them to perform good works. I hope you're still with me. I know this is a challenge, but I did tell you it was going to be meat and not milk. So this is the process by which we are saved. Um, There was a bishop who was asked once, are you saved? Uh, And his answer to him was, well, it depends what you mean. I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. This is the process that the Apostle Paul is talking about. It's happened in the past through justification. We're being saved in the present through regeneration and sanctification. And one day we will be saved on the last day when Jesus returns. I told you there was a process and now the fifth P, there's also a product. This has a point. There's a point to this. There's an aim. There's a goal. And you see it in verse 8 when he says, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. What's the goal? What's the product? The product is good works. We're saved not by good works, but we're saved for good works. We see this all throughout Paul's letter to Titus, uh, this idea of good works and doing what is good. I want to go through it with you briefly. Just like good medicine makes a body fit and strong and healthy so that it can carry heavy loads, so that it can fight off enemies, so God gives us sound doctrine so that we can be strong and able to do good. Let me run through them with you. A church with sound doctrine will be a people full of people who love what is good, chapter 1, verse 8, who are fit for doing good, chapter 1, verse 16, who teach what is good, chapter 2, verse 3, who set an example by doing what is good, chapter 2, verse 6, who are eager to do what is good, chapter 2, verse 14, are ready to do what is good, chapter 3, verse 1, are devoted to doing what is good, are devoted to doing what is good, chapter 3, verse 14. And so like two wings of a plane, you have sound doctrine, good medicine, and you have good works. And without either wing, the plane crashes. And so we see teach, the word teach come up 12 times in Paul's letter to Titus. And this idea of doing what is good come up eight times. They come and fit together like hand in glove. Good medicine makes for a strong, good body. 
Because Jesus, again, this idea is in Jesus, in the Gospel, Matthew. Remember, we said a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, but what's the other part of that equation? A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And that's what Paul is saying. The whole point of this good medicine is so that we can, verse 8, devote ourselves to doing what is good. So that's uh, the product. And finally, there's a pattern in verse 8. This may be where our translations differ the most, but at the start of verse 8, Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. What, what I'm telling you is trustworthy. And I want you, Titus, to stress these things. And then he says, these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Have any of you um, read Jim Collins' um, Good to Great? Does anyone know that book? Uh, he's written a book, uh, a leadership book called um, Good to Great. It's quite a um, seminal um, book on leadership. And in one of the chapters, he talks about the hedgehog principle. Uh, He says, are you a hedgehog or a fox? Uh, The fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. Foxes pursue ends at the same time and see the world in all its complexity. They're scattered or diffused, moving on many levels. Hedgehogs, on the other hand, simplify a complex world into a single organizing idea, a basic principle that unifies and guides everything. Why do I mention the hedgehog and the fox? I mention it because I think the Apostle Paul in verse 8 is giving us the hedgehog principle. He says, I want you to stress these things that I'm telling you. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Another way of putting it is, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And Paul in verse 8 is saying, here's the main thing. Titus, I want you to stress these things in particular. Even the Lord Jesus, when he confronts the Pharisees in John chapter 5, he gives us the hedgehog principle as well. He says to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have new life. You know, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I handed to you as of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. And then he goes through similar descriptions of what we've been through here about Jesus' death for sin, his life, death and resurrection. But it's interesting, when Paul says, I handed these things to you as of first importance, you know what the implication is, right? There are things that are of secondary importance, There are things that are of first importance and there are things that are of secondary importance. And the Apostle Paul, at the end of this passage, is saying, these things I want you to stress. These things are profitable and excellent for everyone. It's the hedgehog principle. So mark it well. If they weren't pew Bibles belonging to the church, I'd say pull out your highlighter and highlight it because they're these things that are supposed to be stressed. That's why our kids' curriculum that we go through is called the Gospel Project. Even though we're going through the entire Bible 
over three years from its beginning to its end. It's called the Gospel Project because the core message in every, on every page is Jesus and these things that Paul is stressing. But please don't uh, think that it's up to us to decide what things are of primary importance and what things are of secondary importance. No, that would be a, a terrible mistake. It's for us to search the Scriptures and to find out what God tells us. What are the things that are of primary importance and what are the things of secondary importance? Can you imagine if a doctor were to prescribe Panadol for stage 4 cancer? Can, can you imagine if a doctor were to prescribe chemotherapy for a headache, the person, the doctor would be banned for life, and rightly so. Well, can you imagine running a youth group where all that was prescribed every time was only games and food and fun, and there was no mention of the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you imagine a small group where all there was was connection and warmth and support and listening, and there was no mention of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine a church and a teaching ministry where the teaching majors on the minor things in the Bible and they minor on the major things in the Bible? That's why Paul says, stress these things. There are things that are of first importance and there are things that are of secondary importance. And how greater are the stakes when we're talking not about the health of the physical body, but we're talking about the eternal health of the soul. That's why James says, not many of, in James chapter 3, verse 1, he says, not many of you should presume to be teachers because you'll be judged more strictly. It's James chapter 3, verse 1. So I'll finish with a quote from Martin Luther that I've mentioned before that is essentially just saying what Paul says here, to stress these things. The gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into our heads continually. The doctrines of grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good doctor who provides good medicine for our souls to be strong, fit and healthy, but not for the sake of being strong, fit and healthy in our souls, but for the sake of devoting ourselves to good works. Father, we praise you for the many good works that we see stemming from this sound doctrine at St. Philip's. And we pray that you would continue to administer that good sound doctrine to our hearts. Lord, help us to administer it to others so that we might be strong in doing good and devote ourselves to doing good. Father, there are so many people here who have done exactly this. Would you encourage them this day? Would you bless them and strengthen them and empower them by the Holy Spirit? Lord, that we might bring great glory to your Son and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're going to sing.